Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now. I'm coming to you from the interval here in San Francisco, where I will be joined by our speaker tonight, Jason Tester, to watch the pre-recorded version of his talk, along with answering questions from you all afterwards. Jason is a foresight researcher with the Institute for the Future here in San Francisco, and has recently been exploring where futurism, sexual orientation, and identity meet. Tonight, he's gonna to give us a taste of that research and show us how looking at the future through an LGBTQ lens can help benefit us all. Welcome, Jason Tester. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you, Xander. Thank you for all for having me here at Long Now. Um, as Xander said, I am Jason, and I'm on a 20-year journey to make sense of my queerness, which has been a part of my life for about that long. I've also been a professional futurist for about the same amount of time, 20 years. And to prove it to you, here's an aged image of what I might look like at age 60. Now, I've long suspected that these two halves of my life weren't a coincidence. And I think I've now discovered why, and I'm excited to really share that with you tonight. I'm trusting most of the Long Now audience will know the basic terms of sexual orientation and gender identity that I'll be using today. But I do want to define the word queer because we really can't start talking about it until I do. So what is queer? Well, as an adjective, queer describes all the sexual and gender identities other than straight and cisgender. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people may all identify with the word queer. Queer is sometimes used to express that sexuality and gender can be complicated, can change over time and might not fit neatly into either or identities like male or female, gay or straight. So when I say queer the future, I mean it in two ways. And this first way is based around queer the adjective. And that's, I wanna identify the future forces that will disproportionately disrupt the lives of LGBTQ people over the next 20 to 30 years. I wanna center our lives in foresight research and futures narratives, and especially to imagine interventions to at least rebalance these imbalanced impacts. As one example of a foresight question I'm working with, how will caregiving assistance and aging in place technologies deal with LGBTQ people and their relationships? It won't come as a shock to learn that LGBT elders are much more likely to have not had children, up to three to four times more likely. But even today, 20% of LGBT older adults say they have no one to call in a time of crisis. That is 10 times the general elderly population. And a mere 8% of senior housing centers offer services targeted at LGBT older adults. We're already deep in, in a caregiving crisis between supply and need. And it's likely that LGBTQ people will need technologies of care more than any other demographic. Another question I'm exploring is, will AI and other intelligent systems built with cisgender heterosexual training data constantly reinforce the gender binary? Imagine bathrooms in the future, particularly in conservative areas or regions of the world, equipped with vision recognition that scan for biological markers or stereotypical gender expressions before they would actually admit someone. It's not hard to imagine a future where more of us are living as gender fluid while surrounded by, by, by binary bias. Machine intelligence programmed without any exposure to other expressions or experiences of gender. And last but not least, there's the big stuff that will affect us all. A study that came out last May discovered that in a business as usual climate scenario, in the absence of migration, one third of the global population is projected to experience a mean annual temperature of greater than or equal to 29 degrees Celsius. And that's about 84 degrees Fahrenheit, which is currently only found in about 0.8% of the Earth's land surface. And that's mostly concentrated in the Sahara. So the report goes on to say, specifically 3.5 billion people will be exposed to a mean annual temperature of greater than or equal to 29 degrees Celsius, living in a Sahara-like climate. I read that and that's a shocking statistic. It's truly hard to comprehend. But since I've been doing this work, I now take 10% of these impossibly large numbers to understand the impact on people who are likely to identify in the coming decades as queer or not totally heterosexual. So we take that same sentence and we queerify it, and we get specifically 350 million queer people will be exposed to mean annual temperatures greater than or equal to 29 degrees Celsius. Now, 3.5 billion people living in a Sahara-like climate is likely to yield 
severe constraints of vital resources and overall miserable conditions. But now, imagine being queer or transgender, living in this newly inhospitable climate that's located in a region of the planet that's already inhospitable to your very existence. Life in that, in that scenario sounds pretty hellish. Another report last year projected that up to 1.2 billion people could be displaced by climate change by 2050, by mid-century. Now, I took, applying the same queer math, the same headline reads, climate crisis could displace 120 million queer people. Now, my goal when I query these numbers isn't to advocate for my people at the expense of other groups or to create an us versus them mentality, but it's simply to call out that large areas of the planet are rapidly becoming doubly inhospitable to queer lives who should have equal rights to the human universals of love, happiness, and true expression. In the coming decades, we are likely to face mass migration at nearly unimaginable levels, but also unprecedented resource scarcity and triage, and ultimately, an inability to provide the necessities of life for everyone that needs them. So here are, here are a couple of concrete examples of this. According to the UN, five billion people could have poor access to fresh water by 2050. And as early as 2030, global water demand is expected to outstrip supply by 40%. And lastly, the UN estimates that the planet will need twice as much food in 2050 as it does today, while grain yields decline as temperatures increase. Now, I know that these aren't uniquely LGBTQ issues, but they're likely to disproportionately affect queer people, given current statistical realities like this. 27% of LGBT adults experienced food insecurity in the prior year, compared to only 17% of non-LGBT adults. And 22% of, of LGBT people in the US live in poverty, compared to only 16%. So given these disproportionate statistical realities today, it's very likely that they'll be, they will extend into the future and we'll see these same disproportionate impacts going forward. So if distribution of critical resources is already this out of balance, when we, don't, when, we, when we have plenty of food and water to go around today, imagine a world when we don't. I hope LGBTQ people will fare equally, but I truly fear we won't. The purpose of my life has now become, if we are indeed all going extinct, let's go extinct together as equals. Which brings me to my, the first thesis of Queering the Future. And I believe that we as a queer and allied community have one generation, roughly 20 to 30 years, to achieve a basic floor of LGBTQ respect and dignity across the planet before things get truly, unambiguously, critically dire for billions of people. And this is a widespread lived reality found in the majority of hearts and minds of a culture, not just toothless legislative proclamations. I mean, not just would you let your bisexual neighbor borrow some of your water rations for her family? Or would you offer your trans customer shelter from the heat or your gay distant cousin a seat in your raft? Unfortunately, that scenario of mass acceptance seems unlikely in the relatively short time frame demanded of it, and a scary prospect for hundreds of millions of LGBTQ adults and young adults if we don't achieve it. But perpetually looming right around the corner is another potential existential threat to my people. Last year, the largest study of the biology of homosexuality was conducted using genetic data from 23andMe and the UK Biobank, so about 500,000 participants total. Their conclusion was that some genes can account for about one-third of the influence over whether someone has ever had same-sex sex at least once in their lives. But not all geneticists supported this research. Many in the LGBT affinity group of the very institute leading this study were opposed including a colleague of the research leader who said in part, I have yet to see a compelling argument that the potential benefits of this study outweigh its potential harms. And indeed, every year, and I've been studying the biology of sexuality for years, there are new groundbreaking studies. There are also ongoing investigations into epigenetic mechanisms of sexuality and a potential connection to hormonal conditions in the womb. We're doing a decent, if slow, job at banning so-called gay cures. Now, these are deeply harmful psychological treatments passing off as beneficial therapies. But what if a gay vaccine became possible, cheaply, at scale, available for everyone? I'll grant you, this is a wild card scenario, low probability, but speaking as a queer man myself, very extremely high impact. But please keep watching after I say this, but I cannot totally dismiss the notion that a gay vaccine would be all bad. It might offer the potential to eliminate the suffering of hundreds of millions of LGBTQ people not yet born, especially in regions that are likely to become inhospitable to queerness and which happen to be those regions becoming literally inhospitable to humanity itself. To be clear, it wasn't lost on me that I might be turning into a queer man considering eugenics against his own people. But I am deeply afraid for our future between the prospect of a century of triaging water and food for hundreds of millions of queer people 
while seeming closer than ever to true understanding of the biology of homosexuality. I'll admit that these are deep-seated existential fears. But I also need to flip that fear, which leads me to my second meaning of queer of the future. Queer can also be used as a verb, and this definition is proposed by Charlie Glickman. As he proposed, fundamentally, queering is an act of ongoing transformation, both within ourselves and in relation to the world around us. To queer something is to take a look at its foundations and question them. We can explore its limits, its biases, its boundaries. We can look for places where there's elasticity or discover ways where we can transform it into something new. To queer is to examine our assumptions and decide which of them we want to keep, change, discard, or play with. So I started asking, does queerness confer any sort of advantage, especially for the wild future world we're headed towards? What even is queerness beyond the theory that we help the tribe raise kids? Despite, or maybe because of all the trauma and marginalization that can come from being born queer, in any family, in any city, in any country in the world, have we created something in our culture found in the periphery and underground that has been waiting for this moment? What if queer culture itself, with some, with some surprising human universals across the globe, is itself a cultural evolutionary mutation, ready to confer advantages of survival and resilience on the, on the larger population? The core irony, of course, that these traits are sourced from a group of people who cannot reproduce themselves, but may be able, able to help humanity as a whole adapt and thrive into the future. Which leads me to thesis number two, and that's that the queer perspective is made up of some surprisingly shared traits and tendencies that will be useful for societies and people to thrive in the coming decades ahead. Put another way, queerness can keep things cool in hotter futures. To date, I've identified five traits that can answer both of these questions. What is queerness? And what mindsets and practices will confer success in the future we're likely headed towards? A queer future could be more than it is today, more transformative, more equitable, hell, even more fabulous for everyone with a touch of a queer eye. Or maybe it's actually the future itself that's already becoming more queer, and all of us need to play catch up. I can be your guide, like Virgil in the Inferno, or the MC from Cabaret, or any one of the hosts from Queer Eye, all rolled into one. Of course, queerness is more than these five traits, and success in the future will require more skills than this list. But I hope seeing queerness and the future in conversation together like this sparks some novel insights for about how you approach the future, the lenses and biases that we all bring to our forecasting. So think of this as a guide to how to queer the future. And step number one is to question prevailing systems. Queerness fundamentally exists in opposition to arguably the most prevailing system in the human condition, which is heterosexual reproduction. In fact, the DNA of queerness is suspicion or outright rejection of norms, orthodoxy, and continuation scenarios. Because norms and continuation typically kept us miserable or dead for millennia. A default to question the unquestionable is a strong foundation to readily envision transformative alternatives and original ways of doing and being. Jose Esteban Munoz wrote Cruising Utopia just as the light at the end of the tunnel was shining towards the, the end of the AIDS epidemic, and we could begin to see queerness again for, for its positivity and for its hopefulness. And he wrote, queerness is essentially about the rejection of a here and now and an insistence on potentiality or concrete possibility for another world. And this is an infamous pamphlet that was passed out by ACT UP in the 1990 New York Gay Pride Parade. Being queer means leading a different sort of life. It's not about the mainstream, profit margins, patriotism, patriarchy, or being assimilated. It's not about executive directors, privilege, and elitism. It's about being on the margins, defining ourselves. Well, many of us first heard of uh, prison and police abolition this summer with many of the Black Lives Matter riots. Um, resisting and questioning the dominant systems have of police and incarceration in the carceral state have long been in the DNA of queerness itself, going all the way back to the 1966 Compton's Cafeteria riots here in San Francisco, or three years later, uh, at the, the root of the Stonewall riots, which was an anti-police demonstration. And as noted activist Dr. Angela Davis has pointed out, as it was true for so much of queer history, it was transgender people who actually pointed the way to this resistance. Dr. Davis says, we support the trans community precisely because the trans community has taught us how to challenge that which is totally accepted as normal. If it is possible to challenge the gender binary, then we can certainly effectively resist prisons and police. Now, coming out is also a form of questioning the prevailing systems. By choosing to come out, queer people go through a process. They start a personal journey that consciously places them on the margins of what is quantitatively mainstream. And that comes with a double-edged sword you no longer have an autopilot, the same as many of your straight heterosexual friends do. And rather than being superfluous to change, the margins are in fact the foundry of the future where societies innovate and grow. 
So the very act of coming out, the very act of declaring yourself a queer person is itself questioning the mainstream system and starting to make the future in a new way. Our second step in how to queer the future is about rejecting binaries and binary thinking. Most forecasts of work and life in the future imagine greater fluidity in our identities, our preferences, self-expression, and our communications and interactions. But queerness found comfort with nuance outside of categories early on, simply because we've been forced to craft our own alternatives to most institutions in society. Queer adaptations to the binaries of married or single or family or friend, or even our own internal compasses of attraction and gender in each moment, often begin like all novel futures as outliers, if not considered fully deviant, then certainly not accepted by the mainstream. Before time passes, they're reconsidered for their benefits and suddenly have widespread appeal. Let's take, let's take the gender binary, for example. The gender binary is so entrenched in our lives that we will literally explode the world to reinforce it. These are scenes from gender binary reveal parties over the past year, in which couples dramatically reveal the gender of their child through a pink or blue substance, such as exploding smoke. The binary is so reinforced that so many couples have taken this to an extreme with their reveals, inadvertently lighting tens of thousands of acres on fire. Now, that biology does not equal identity often gets lost in the spectacle. Binary, defi binary defenders have crashed planes, enlisted alligators, backfired trucks, and gotten into fights at and kicked out of Applebee's. And most unfortunately, once exploded a pipe bomb into a guest's skull, killing her instantly. As The Atlantic put it, how many people have to die before we're done with gender reveals? And I would ask, with gender itself. Another example of resisting binaries uh, comes to us from sex columnist Dan Savage and his term that he coined about 10 years ago called monogamish. And he coined this term to describe the arrangement that he has with his husband for occasional extramarital sex with other people and the rules and the, and the requirements that go with that condition. Savage was aiming to create a more realistic sexual ethic that would prize honesty, a little flexibility, and when necessary, forgiveness. Something to live between promiscuity and monogamy, which Savage considers right for many, but unnatural for most. And, and so again, another queer adaptation to a, to, to, to a heteronormative binary. I could have put up many headlines here to show just how queer the younger generations are proving to be than their older counterparts. Teens these days are queer AF, study says. Only 48% of Gen Zs identify as exclusively heterosexual, compared to 65% of millennials aged 21 to 34. Those belonging to Generation Z also rejected the gender binary while shopping. Only 44% said they always bought clothes designed for their own gender, versus 54% of millennials. So as we can see, the gender binary, at least with these new younger generations, is falling fast. Our next step in our journey to how to queer the future is connect intersectionally. Now, this really starts from an assumption that a more egalitarian and broadly prosperous future seems difficult to achieve if we can't agree to live and interact in both deep diversity and deep harmony with each other. As simple as it sounds, working at widespread scale to acknowledge and understand that the lived experiences of people from different backgrounds will be different is a very hard notion for many people to truly grasp including others' experiences of discrimination and privilege, particularly realities of people of color, but also the lives of those with disabilities and people with fewer means than ourselves. This concept is known as intersectionality. While relatively simple to convey, and can be very difficult to put into practice, but without this basic floor of mutual respect and acceptance, we may not survive. Intersectionality is arguably the most important skill for us making it into the future. If so many of our most talented community members hold back from their true selves, their full creativity, their full joy and passion from the, from the unprecedented task we face of remaking the world because the fullness of their identities feels unwelcome. We do not get all of the ideas that we need to make it into the next world. This is where I have to be the first to admit that queerness, and particularly white queerness, is far from perfect at making this future our reality. The first group of gay rights groups formed after Stonewall were deeply intersectional and multiracial. And many argue that the recent focus on gay marriage took us away from the more important issues of economic and employment equity. As one signal that the queer community is trying to re-queer its own future, we've, we've amended the pride flag to acknowledge and center the lives and importance of queer people of color in our movement, adding black and brown stripes on top of the already seven color rainbow. One way in which queer people as a community do have an advantage is through the shared advantage of marginalization. One experience of marginalization predisposes you to, to greater understanding of compound marginalizations that other people may face. One way to think about intersectionality is, a is as a tool for augmented empathy. Empathy, of course, will be a vital skill in this increasingly crowded, automated, and unequal, polarized, and mediated century so far. 
Understanding the way another person encounters the world, accepted or shunned by their peers, bosses, and strangers, is a deeply human act. Now, as we're talking about practicing intersectionally, I want to make a, a bit of a side note here to say that I firmly believe that the future of the future is being created by transgender women of color and gender non-binary people of color, and that we should all trust their leadership, particularly those, in the, uh, those of us in the queer community. I can't highly recommend enough the documentary, The Future of Trans by Amara Jones, and the Trans Agenda for Liberation's Call to Action to grow your understanding of their deeply intersectional lives. Additionally, the exciting intersectional futurism of people like Lonnie Brooks, who's pioneering Afro-queer futures, and whose long now talk you can easily Google and watch. Our next step in how to queer the future is one very much related to some fundamentals of queerness, embracing pleasure and joy. Historically, queerness has long prioritized feelings of pleasure and joy as indicators of happiness and well-being, far, be far before modern medicine accepted their value. But not just medicinally, Queerness has spoken of these as, as essential precursors to unspeakable heights of creativity and uninhibited ideation, basically found foundations to imagining radically new futures. But even this had become taboo since queer pleasure, queer pleasure was deeply stigmatized when LGBTQ people were fighting battles on multiple fronts against AIDS and for equal, equal access to mainstream institutions like the right to marry and adopt. The fundamental sexuality of queerness went away to, for many people to find, respect, find respectability in the mainstream society. But this is starting to come back in, in movements like pleasure activism. Pleasure activism is the organized struggle to reprioritize bliss and sensuality, to build individual and collective resilience, and ultimately as a necessary foundation to conjure better worlds. I'd like to share this quote from pleasure activism author Adrienne Marie Brown. You're not going to forget the suffering in the world just because you had a great orgasm. You're going to have more resilience for turning and facing that suffering if you're also in touch with the part of your life that feels amazing, and not just the total catastrophes that are happening. Or as our favorite queer futurist of all time, Jose Esteban Munoz put it in Cruising Utopia, some will say that all we have are the pleasures of this moment, but we must never settle for that minimal transport. We must dream and enact new and better pleasures, other ways of being in the world, and ultimately new worlds. Which This quote really fascinates me as someone who is always trying to come up with new ideas and new and new transformative, more accurate futures, more wild futures, that what if we actually based, based that not on technology, not on, on GDP, not on value, but on pleasure, and, we, and really our goal was to find new pleasure in new, in new futures. That really excites me. And our last step in how to create the future is hustling between worlds. So for a long time, to find companionship and work when neither were available to us in mainstream society, Queer folks for millennia have been re-perceiving re and repurposing spaces and platforms to seek their hidden layers, latent gigs, and the underground social networks when any form of trade or hustling existed on the margins of respectable society. Queerness pioneered this, this rhythm of finding ad hoc latent opportunity, the hustle that now truly defines the future. Work, for food, love, everything on demand if you know where and how to look. Only recently has proficiency of the hustle and juggling multiple hustles become an admired ability. By now you've heard of, used, or as you're watching me, are also getting notifications from a location-based smartphone app. But Grindr for gay men started it all. <clears throat> Launched less than two years after the iPhone, Grindr was an instantly game-changing tool for the hustle and changed the future of online dating. Rather than congregating in bars to find romance and limited by who else happened to be there, Grindr gave you the superpower to stay home and see the previously invisible layer of other guys near you. Grindr didn't invent mobile social networking, but it certainly did set an early model for how we come to see our, think of our phones as secret decoders, revealing the latent possibilities surrounding us for everything from car rental to food delivery to romance. Futurist Madeline Ashby, who has done a great deal of, of speculative work and uh, recently wrote How to Future, um, has this passage that I love that captures a lot about the, the relationship between hustling and the future. She writes, for a long time, the future has belonged to people who have not had to struggle. And I think that will still be true. But as more and more systems collapse, currency, energy, the ability to get water, the ability to work, the future will increasingly belong to those who know how to hustle. And those people are not the people who are producing those purely optimistic futures. The future belongs to, to those who know how to hustle. And MJ Petroni, a local queer futurist and UX designer, in an interview, he talked about what he values looking for in queer employees. We often look for people who have existed in lots of different worlds 
and in walking back and forth between these spaces and never being fully at home, they learn a lot about the unspoken rules and assumptions and codes and values that exist. So I really wanted to try to answer the question in these five trades. How can querying the future solve our most wicked problems? How can querying the future help anybody? And I hope that across these five skills or traits that show that queer folks across countries and millennia have demonstrated a nimble resilience, prosperity for adaptation and resourcefulness, a healthy skepticism and embrace for other worlds, a continual, if far from perfect, practice of deep empathy that keeps us striving to do better, and a widespread acceptance of the connection between our biologies and our desires and achieving our destinies under any conditions. But on an even deeper level, we won't achieve transformative solutions to our most critical problems using the same legacy tools that we've used in the past. We need everyone to bring their ideas and engagement to bear on the complexity of the future. Yet 1.5 billion people currently live in 72 countries where homosexuality is illegal, and billions more live in countries without widespread cultural acceptance. And we know that being your full self makes a difference in your participation and your citizenship in a society or in a workplace. As one example, the Boston Consulting Group has found that the ability to be out at work helps workers feel twice as much psychological safety and one and a half times more empowered and free to take creative risks. Imagine, imagine, the, imagine the other freedoms that billions of people lose being in the closet around the world every single day. But setting aside pro productivity or innovation on any measure, I want to end on this statistic, which I learned last year and has really become one of my North Stars. Researchers at the, at the Family Acceptance Project at San Francisco State University, one question they're asked is, do you believe that you will ever be a happy LGBT adult? For queer youth who come from families rated extremely accepting, 92%, 92% are able to imagine themselves in happy futures. For queer youth from, from families who, out, who, who outright shun or reject them, only 35% have this ability. Think about that for a minute. Two-thirds of LGBTQ young people who had the misfortune to be born to families that cannot accept them have lost the ability to imagine their future selves being happy. I can't see how losing that ability is any different from losing one's fundamental sense of hope, hope for themselves, hope for the world, hope for their, for the, for their individual future or ours collectively. So it's phenomena like this that happen every day Anywhere an LGBTQ kid is growing up, knowing that they're different, afraid to express it, even in the most progressive regions, let alone the most conservative, that motivates me to keep querying the future and showing that the future can be queer. To create more scenarios with thriving queer protagonists, to uncover the trends that will particularly impact LGBTQ people, not just to preempt emerging victimhood, but also to empower them to grab the wheel and grab us by the future they see and deserve. To learn more about any of the LGBT foresight research that I presented today, please check out the research home at queerthefuture.org. This has been me so far, with the help of a lot of friends and experts and, and, and people, smarter people I'm talking to. But I would love this to be a home where anyone, anyone who identifies as a queer futurist, a trans futurist, a non-binary futurist, anywhere in the world, can come and can share their ideas. And we can create collective visions for how we want our lives and our communities to live in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, this was really amazing to have you. Um, I'm joining us tonight um, from my home just because of the heightened state of, of things in the pandemic. But thank you for joining us live from the interval tonight so that you can answer some of the questions that are coming in from our stream. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Great. Awesome. Um, well, I hope you enjoyed uh, seeing the version of your talk. I'd love to just get into some of the questions that, that I had. You know, I think one of the possibly the most mm -hmm. Pro provocative statement that you have in here um, is this idea of the queer vaccine, which, you know, obviously vaccines couldn't mm -hmm. be more on the forefront of all of our minds at the moment. <laughs> but I don't think that's the one that people were thinking of uh, being being used. And, the, and, you know, obviously how provocative that is from a eugenic standpoint. So I'd love for you to just kind of mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit more as to, you know, I think what you were trying to say is that there are people in places in the world that are so persecuted that it could actually help suffering for those people and, and that you can't take it off the table for people that might be killed because of their, their queerness. Pretty much. I mean, every, every year our understanding of, of, the, of the genetics of homosexuality, of sexuality in general, um, our understanding of, of genetic technologies in general increases. And every, every year, every two years, we see the results of a giant massive study looking at trying to identify the gay gene. 
Um, and we're, we're getting closer to the point where we haven't identified the gay gene yet. We think it may be multiple genes, um, but it's that, it's that I, we, we hint at it in the video. It's this idea that um, there could be a mechanism by which we never have to identify the gay gene, um, but we can identify what affects that gene. Um, for example, uh, every, uh, for every male fetus that was in a womb before the next one, uh, that, that next fetus has a 33% chance, greater chance of being born gay. Um, so that we know there's something about the hormonal uh, changes and, and positioning and balance in the womb um, that can that affect sexuality. Uh, so my concern, I mean, this is a, granted, this is a wild card, uh, you know, low probability, but very high impact. Um, my is that we don't need to spend $50,000 to edit out the gay gene fetus by fetus. Uh, but we could actually just we could work around that, never identify the, the gene itself, but just prevent it from activating. Uh, if the, what if that was a dollar a day supplement uh, for a pregnant person, um, you know, to, to have a to reduce the chance of having a queer kid by 50% or greater. Um, I mean, that was one of the first, putting all those, that, that two inch together was one of the first times I felt, I, I felt, I felt kinship with my community. I felt it was, it was, I felt a, a bit of kind of existential, uh, existential communal kinship, really. Um, like we could, we could go extinct. Uh, what is there about, I mean, there have been, evolutionary biology theories about why homosexuality for forever, that we help raise the kids, that uh, we are we are supplemental parents, that we um, mediate mediate the tribe. Um, but what if it were to just, what if it were to disappear? What if we had the ability to make it disappear? Um, I think there's a lot of, and this is the genesis of the research, I think there's a lot of queerness that's worth saving. Indeed. And I think, and, you know, and to, 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 to your point, I mean, when sonograms became available in, um, in certain countries and regions that, that, you know, basically um, kind of exalt male children, um, we've seen the, the female um, birth rate fall through the floor. Um, and so, Absolutely. you know, there's, there's already kind of these levels of using technology for a eugenic or a societal kind of desire. Um, and so, you certainly could imagine in places where countries that are so violent and uh, marginalized for um, for queerness that those parents may choose to not have a queer child for sure. And and to and to the the way you frame the question, would is preventing a a queer child from being born in one of those conservative places is that actually an act of compassion? Um, from actually from, I mean, and I can't I can't dismiss that possibility. Uh, right, and you can imagine parents given, making it from that point that place in their heart. Um, not yeah. from, you yeah. know, obviously from a place of, I think, you know, misunderstanding of what it is, but also, but truly understanding how difficult that kid's life is going to be in their culture. That's what it's one of the, even, even, even in the most developed progressive places, it's one of the first, uh, many parent, many ask any queer person, uh, and their parents, one of their first reactions will be when you come out will be, I just want you to, I don't want you to have a, have a hard life. Um, and that's, that's, that's such a universal re reaction that parents have upon coming out. Um, it can only be when, when you have the potential to prevent that in a place where that life would be so tough, that's, that's, that's going to be a tough bioethical crossroads to, to, that, we're, that we're facing. No, and I think we're, I mean, we're going to be facing this for in all kinds of parts of genetic engineering. And we are, you know, as I said, there's already ways that we're finding it out for gender itself. Um, I think, you know, but, you know, and we're already, you know, when, you know, my daughter was born, they gave us all these host of tests that we could test for to decide if we wanted to have a kid of that had various diseases. Um, and mm -hmm. so again, from the compassion of the parents position, they may want to choose to not have that child. Um, and it's a, it's, but it, it also kind of, it takes, it takes this whole realm of, um, of, I think, um, a variation out of the human experience too, which is, I think, you know, if, if all the kids were these blonde, blue eyed, perfect, you know, eugenic, you know, kids, um, <laughs> that all had the same gender preference and, and non-queerness, then, you know, I don't think that's the, the world that we actually want to live in truly. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs>
No, and I think to that point, I, I think, um, you know, and we're seeing now a much more acceptance, at least in certain, uh, in certain cultures of queerness, you know, things, shows like Queer Eye having such a huge um, thing and RuPaul's Drag Race being, you know, this huge, um, you know, kind of success and Emmy Award, award winning thing that, that there's clearly a huge acceptance, at least in certain cultures, that queerness and otherness bring so much to our culture that, that they, that these marginalized groups um, can help our culture in so many ways. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are and why, why is it that the marginalized groups can bring us so much creativity and so much, um, so much kind of fabulousness to our, to our culture? <laughs> what, what is it about the marginalization, do you I, think? Well, as, as we hit in the, in the video, I think there's, when, when you choose to come out, when you choose to life, live the life of that is, you know, let's say queerness is five to 10% of the population, right? Um, you, are, you are living your life against the 90% of that main street. Um, and it's a double-edged sword. You are, you no longer have the autopilot um, that many people have um, that where the obvious next decision is made for you. Do I, well, yes, I naturally get married and naturally have kids. Um, but you also have so much more freedom uh, to, to chart your own path. And I think to chart your own path, to uh, explore ideas and arrangements and these, and these spaces between binaries that we talked about, um, that when you're, when, you're living, when you're living in the margins, I mean, the, mar the margins are really the, the foundry of creativity, the foundry of the future. Um, and I think that's, I think a queer life just lends itself, lends itself naturally to greater consideration, greater uh, awareness of the choices that we're making, um, and, and also greater experimentation. No, and I think, you know, uh, our previous speaker, Dr. Lonnie Brooks, who was talking um, about Afrofutures as well as Afroqueer Futures, I think one of the things that he pointed out that was really eye-opening for me was this this notion that um, that uh, that black people have have had to be futurists because their marginalized present was so so difficult that in a way they had to project a, a better future for themselves in order to to kind of have a present that they could live with. And um, I'm wondering, is, do you feel as though that's a similar thing for queer populations? I do. I actually, I, I, I have a, I believe this is a, a, a saying of mine, uh, that queer people actually, queer people make some of the best futures because for most of our lives, we've had to hope that tomorrow, that tomorrow will be better for us than today. Um, that we will be more respected, more welcome, more accepted um, in the world of tomorrow, the world of next week and the world of next year. And then we happen today, and we know. Yes, we're. Our, our, I'm losing my trajectory here, but, but yes, we're making progress. Um, but it is it is scattershot progress. We are, you know, often going two steps forward, one step back. Um, we're not there yet. Yeah, and, and going back to some of the new technologies, I think you know some of the new technologies that may be coming in genetics may allow you know you 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 said that you know the um, some queer parents are seen as this extra set of parents, um, but mm. um, you know I think what's coming um, very obviously is that um, there's already technologies where two people of the same gender can effectively generate a, a offspring, or even you can generate offspring based on only a single person's genetic material coming. So do you think that's going to change some of the outlooks and the way the ways we parent and the way we think about parenting? I think it will, and, and what excites me is that we uh, that queer people may actually be able to uh, perpetuate ourselves. Um, no longer that, no longer being this 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 artifact or this this rare mutation uh, within the heterosexual population within heterosexual reproduction, but that we could uh, potentially perpetuate queerness ourselves. There's a, there's a fascinating study recently um, that uh, children. I believe it was uh, children or daughters of lesbian parents are more likely to be uh, have to have had same sex experimentation, uh, and that's the the theory. The the, the why is, is still up for grabs, of course, um, but something that being raised by queer parents creates creates more of a space for 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 this experimentation for for choosing 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 your own for following your own path, following your own preferences, uh, and deciding what's right for you. Um, which is is really exciting. Well, certainly, I mean, some of the statistics you were showing between Gen Z and Gen, um, you know, the current generation, millennial generation, sorry, the last generation, Gen Z and uh, the millennial generation, that there's the acceptance seems to also be allowing for so many more people to identify um, in a in a really 
profound way. I mean, we're not, you're close. We're crossing the fifty percent line of basically effectively gender for uh, for people right. that that feel free to identify as as non-binary. And part of part of that has been the terms. So I think, as I understand it, a lot of young people have almost a, an allergic reaction to the terms to the to the first generation of terms: lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Um, as 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 the questions they're asked are they are you are you gender fluid? Are you um, have you are you not exclusively heterosexual? Uh, as we talk more about these in between categories, and you don't, you don't have to fit into one distinct category or bucket with a with a fifty year past and fifty year legacy and making a huge declaration, but just be just be fluid to be open. That's when we're seeing these numbers really climb um, from from the the five percent that may be gay um, in in older generations to the fifty percent who are identify as not. So as gender fluid or as not exclusively heterosexual, down, all the way down to Gen Z. Um, so it's it's it lay, so language is a part of it, but also but really just an understanding of this of of spectrums and fluidity away from the categories from first generation. We're certainly we are at least in third fourth generation of of LGBT culture and life and activism now, and it's it's it's, it's I can't wait to see where it goes. Right. Well, I want to come back to that a little bit. We also have a few questions coming in. And um, the first one from Kevin Kelly is organizing our questions um, and kind of to this point of do, do you think science should guide what we consider queer or or should we should we let that hmm. be a societal and a self or a self um, expression? Hmm. If I we identify this gene, should, is that should be the only thing that we rely upon? I, I think, I mean, queer is, queer is such a moving target. Um, I mean, queer almost, queer almost always needs something to exist in opposition against. Um, uh, I mean, you know, queer is, um, how do I put it? Um, I mean, queer, needs, queer really does need to be transgressive um, against, a, against a prevailing system. I think, I think that what is the notion of what is queer will change over time. Um, and I, I, I think uh, you know, a, identifying identifying the the gay gene, identifying you know a distinct biology, uh, distinctive marker of homosexual of of, of queerness, homosexuality, um, does not necessarily confer um, confer all these traits. And this is one thing that one nuance that, has, that we hasn't come up yet is that queer is not queer is not necessarily gay. Uh, I mean, there are, there are queerness and the the LGBT, LGBT uh, is different than the Q in many respects. Um, that queerness is queerness is a, is a is a form of fluid homosexuality that that really exists, I think, in um, in active kind active conversation and active um, um, opposition to a lot of mainstreams. And these are these are some of the traits I, I was meaning to identify. Um, we have the, the these these the, not every uh, LGBT person can can queer the future in the way that someone who is truly who truly identifies and embodies queerness uh, can. So I think that's that's an important distinction is um, really isolating what is what is queerness, what is it now, what what has it been, um, and can we can we keep that kind of this non assimilationist identity can, can can we keep that can we, can we preserve that going forward well that's interesting and i think you know how this identity has kind of come out and been more accepted and you mentioned things like the cafeteria and stonewall riots which um mm. and and really how that it came from uh, the black trans community that that really mm -hmm. threw the first bricks in the windows literally of this right, of right. this fight um but i i also feel as though to a certain extent they kind of got left behind in the movement and they we're just now starting to see them coming forward um in the conversation much more than i think um you know let's say white gay men um and even you know white lesbian women have have been able to mm -hmm. be accepted and i'm not sure is that because they could kind of pass in culture way more than obviously an, a kind of an out black tra trans uh, woman or man? I mean, I think, you know, we have to look back at it, look back at intersectionality, which we talked about. Um, the intersection of racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, you know, the, a, 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 a transgender person of color, um, you know, female, female centered 
a person of color, um, has a much has many many more um, uh, you know against against the mainstream expectation going going for her, um, and so yeah, I, mean, I think I think you look at look at the student intersectional lens, um, and, and and those stats about poverty about hunger that we that we pulled up um, for a lot of those stats you know between. Um, they, those, those stats don't really tell, tell the entire picture between, uh, uh, let's say, gay white men and straight white men. Um, you know, those disparities are actually not, um, you know, white, white, whiteness is a lot of privilege. Um, but if you look at, you know, the, you know, what percentage of, 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 of black black queer or black trans people live in poverty, then those numbers get so much higher. Those that we're talking a third or higher people live in poverty, live in hunger. Um, so we're just, we really need to map and understand the nuances within our community. Well, I think to that point, you know, we have a question here from, uh, from Nick from YouTube feed. Um, you mentioned, you know, that the kind of percentages of families that are more accepting and less accepting at this point. Uh, luckily, it mm -hmm. seems to be on largely on at least in the American culture on a, on a good trajectory. But what about the research into the ones that they kind of the 35 percent who live in families that are unaccepting but manage to stay accepting? Like how, how are we how are we finding ways to support those kids and how are they finding support themselves? Yeah, I mean, something like uh, a I want, to, I want to say, I may butcher the numbers here, but a third up to 40% of homeless teen, teens uh, or young adults are LGBT um, versus what being 10% of the 10% roughly of the population. Um, so this is this is a real phenomenon. Uh, and luckily, there are there are a lot of, of groups that are focusing on, um, you know, queer kids, queer kids, queer teens, queer young adults who have been rejected, who are living on the streets. Uh, and trying to trying to specifically solve the the, the multiple intersecting problems that they face, uh, trying to get back on their feet without family resources. I mean, that's um, the idea of the idea of the, of the chosen family uh, is so important to queer communities, right? Uh, since so many parents, so many so many parents, so many families are are rejecting to some degree, right? Whether it's uh, don't bring your partner home for Christmas. Um, to don't ever don't ever come to my house again. That the idea of the, the the notion of the chosen family, which is starting to spread from one of those innovations that started, I think started in queer culture and is and is you know has has such benefit and value that other people are 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 adopting it. Um, that the chosen family is, is really important. It's one of our survival adaptations, and I think survival survival under many conditions is one thing queerness excels at. Nice, and uh, we had. One clarification question that I'd love to get from you is: um, is uh, what is what is a chosen family? I don't think everyone is understanding that term. Sure, uh, chosen family is so uh, parents. Uh, you come out to your parents um, often, depending on, on where you live, who your parent, how your parents were raised. Is religion a part of the, of the family? Parents are often very rejecting. Uh, I know I, every every LGBTQ person knows someone whose family has essentially shunned them has said, do not, you are not welcome here. They maybe talk once a decade. Um, a chosen family is, you know, you, you move away from, it's often rural, rural to big city. Um, and these, and chosen family are, are it's, it's the people that are your new family. It's the people that are, they're a hybrid of their, their, their friends, their former lovers. Um, they're, they're the people that you, that you, whose shoulders you cry on, um, that, that you, you know, talk to that, that know your life story. Uh, it's, it's, it's friendship plus really. Um, it's, and it, think of it, think of it as a, um, who would you invite to Thanksgiving if, if, if not for your own family? Uh, I think it's one thanks, Thanksgiving is often where chosen family really right. manifests. Right? <laughs> who, who would be around, who would be around, who would be around that very queer table? Um, right. Well, um, I want to thank you very much for this work and for giving this talk. We're coming across the top of the hour, but I'd love to give you a chance to maybe say a little bit about either where you're going with this work and, and or what your your next work is. I know you work, you've been affiliated with the Institute for the Future and they've been uh, they've been supporting this work to some level, but I'd love to hear kind of where what's your ecosystem of this work and, and where do you see it going next? Oh, I, I, I want to keep pursuing this, quite honestly. This is, um, 
I mean, I, I really, as I mentioned at the very top of the video, I mean, I have been, I've been a futurist for 20 years. I have been uh, basically out for about 20 years. Uh, and I'm finally feeling, I'm finally feeling those, those converge. Um, I, I want to explore I mean, both, both queer foresight. So I'm, I'm really starting to understand what are the forces, what are the future forces that will disproportionately disrupt the lives of LGBT people? Um, I mean, we're talking, we're talking automation, I think will disproportionately disrupt, um, uh, you know, these natural, natural resource depletion uh, will, will disproportionately disrupt poverty, hunger. Um, and then, and so that we can begin to future-proof, future-proof future -proof my community, future-proof um, us as a, as a subculture. Um, but then also to explore, really to explore this it's queering as a as a as a toolkit, queering as a mindset. Um, I mean, I'm going to get I, I as much as there may be some trouble brewing in the in the uh, in the comments right now. I'm going to get in trouble for even implying that queerness could be um, could be uh, turned into into a toolkit or a utility. Uh, I think that, but I, I absolutely think there's so much. There's a lot that queerness has through struggle. Uh, through struggle, through through pain, through violence, through death, has mastered, um, and that I think needs to be shared and can help a lot of other people going forward. So uh, I think I, queer futures, uh, in, in short, I think is you know hopefully that is hopefully that carries me through uh, as a futurist. Next, well, I'm I'm reminded when you say that that um, you know one of my favorite principles of of longevity, uh, which was kind of coined around the discovery of the bristlecone pine tree, the longest lived single species, was that adversity breeds longevity and that things that live in the most mm. difficult environments are often the most long lived. And we see this, I think, with institutions, cultures, um, biology. And and I'm hoping that at least through some of the adversity, some good things are going to be coming out of it. And um, thank you very much for joining us um, and look forward to hearing more of your work in the future. Thank you, thank you very much for hosting me. Thank you. And I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us. Um, the recording of this will be up in perpetuity. Um, and um, and I hope for that you can join us for some of our future talks. We have some amazing things planned for the rest of 2021, which I'm hoping will even bring us back to some in-person uh, events at some point in the future. So thank you very much. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.